point. Okay, we're live. There we go. All right. So, yes, yes. this would be a good time. This holiday uh, coming up would be a good time for retreat as opposed to sharing germs with friends. <laughs> there you go. Um, the important thing about a, um, a, be a beginner's retreat like this that you're going to do on your own is to make sure that you are, let us say, uh, The, re the retreats, if you go to a formal retreat, one of the things that they do is they take away everything. They take away um, writing pads and pens and pencils and notebooks and uh, PCs and um, books, especially Dhamma books and all of that kind of stuff. So that um, during that retreat period, the student has every opportunity uh, to keep coming back to the Dhamma as opposed to going off on to whatever uh, we would have done if we hadn't been on retreat. And so uh, making the strong determination that for the whole retreat that you're not going to read any books or watch any TV or um, do any internet stuff. Yeah. If you can get down to that point, you're already underway. Is removing all of the uh, the worldly stuff around you, so that you can begin to deal with uh, your own mind. I would also um, uh, recommend that you go barefoot the whole time even when you're doing, and especially when you're doing some walking. That getting in touch with the body is, uh, is a great deal of um, Anapanasati. And the, and the Buddha mentions the body and mindfulness of the body uh, more than any of the other Satipatthana, almost with the assumption that uh, somewhere at the end of the sentence, he has, and the rest. But he really emphasizes getting in touch with the body. And um, everything about life is around the body anyway. That without a body, you don't have eyes. Without eyes, you don't have seeing. Without seeing, you're blind. If you don't have a body, you don't have ears. If you don't have ears, you can't hear, and then you're completely deaf. Yeah. You go through that, and guess what? You don't exist. <laughs> in fact, you don't exist in in a uh, a philosophical or formal sense anyway. That all we are is just a collection of all of these bits and pieces that are associated with the body. Another idea that our uh, way of looking at it, and then you can say is without a body, you've got no brain cavity to keep a brain in. And that what I'm pointing at here is one of the most important teachings of the Buddha. And that there are several Pali words associated with it. One is itiapapajayata, and the other one is paticca samupada. Now, what the word Paticca Samupada means is, is that this 
is dependent upon something and that everything is based in uh, uh, in fact the entire teachings of the Buddha if we're not going to go the classical route of I only teach one thing Dukkha Dukkha Naroda basically the Buddha only taught one thing and that was causality mm. causality in other words, you don't have dukkha if it doesn't have a cause, which is the second noble truth. What's the cause of all the dukkha? All right. So basically, this this strange poly word that I just said, idiopapajayatam, actually is very easily to translate is, without this, there is not that. Mm. With without the or with this, there is that is the way of, of looking at it, which means the cause and an effect. And we can also say that uh, sometimes the causes are uh, that we're looking at are, are is a kind of conditionality. All right. Um, for instance, uh, water is is water and can be drink. However, if you condition that water with arsenic or lead, then that water um, is not drinkable because it's been conditioned by poison. Does that make sense about why things sometimes when we talk about causality, we're actually talking about conditionality, that things are conditioned that this changes that. But without that change or without that condition, um, that the change will often go away. An example of that will be that the water will evaporate and then it'll rain and now you've got rainwater and it's got no more arsenic in it. And so everything changes, everything is in a cycle. And in fact, this is the, um, let us say they work together in the sense of the Pali word anicca, which means everything is changing, and this word idiopapajayata, which actually means conditionality. So that if everything is conditioned, then everything is subject to change. And what we wind up finding out is, is that everything is in turmoil. Everything is constantly in flux. Everything is changing. And so this weekend, when you're there, that gives you an opportunity to start settling down so that you begin to see the enormity of what's happening when the normal mind thinks that nothing is happening. Where there's a lot going on. Okay, so this is one of the things to begin to look for is, is that all the stuff that we used to spend our time with We're not going to spend our time with that anymore for this short period of time. What we're going to spend our time with is to watch how things change, evolve, um, uh, are in constant flux, constant motion, and that mostly and primarily um, that you're going to pay attention to the conditionality associated with the body learning to watch the breathing. Notice that when you're not watching the breathing, 
that the breathing gets shallow. But then when you're watching the breathing correctly, you take long, deep, satisfying in-breaths. You know, one thing, one thing that I noticed today, because um, I really, you know, I woke up this morning and I did like a good 45-minute meditation session. And then throughout the day, I did like 10 minutes, like broke up my day with 10-minute sessions. And then did another like 30 to 40-minute session afterwards, like before I went to the gym. And but I noticed that like throughout the day, I was really trying to be sort of like in retreat mode already. So I was just like, you know, watching the hands like on the keyboard, like hand on the mouse, like um, try to even gladden the mind just while I'm sitting there and like working. This is like what I was trying to do, like continuously. I noticed like around you know, maybe six o'clock, five o'clock, like. I just was not able to really keep up with it. I started losing track of getting up and stopping and then going and then like sitting down and doing all that. Right. Well, what happens if you go to the gym and you haven't been going to the gym much and now you go to the gym and you spend the whole day in the gym? (laughs) You can get tired. You get tired. Exactly. And that's what you're talking about, that you you gotten tired. But now the new way of looking at it is to watch the tiredness, recognize that the mind is tired, start to play with the tired mind. Mm -hmm. That when you're tired is not a time to give up. Now is the time to just enjoy being tired. Wow, what a workout that's been. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, enjoy that. that the mind gets tired, but the mind gets refreshed from um, its fuels. That if the mind has gotten tired because you spent a long time without um, doing the normal things that the mind does, including relaxing, you can recognize that the tiredness comes because of lack of two things. One is the the fuel of energy of um, glucose or blood sugar and the other one is oxygen and so that might be then when you recognize that that you're tired having a teaspoon of sugar or a candy bar or something like that and a few deep breaths and to notice that the mind can change like that By adding these two things, you can actually begin to change the mind. This is such an important, powerful teaching of the Buddha, is to start looking for it in the sense of fuel. That um, I have known about this particular sutta for a long time, but a couple of days ago, a couple of students and I went through this sutta. It's number 38 in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's the Mahatanha... Uh, Sanhata Sutta and Ahaya uh, uh, Sutta, San, Sanhaya. And that Sankhaya Sutta, uh, the word Sankhaya means to eliminate or to destroy. And so this is the great uh, destruction of Tanha or our grasping and clinging. And um, a great deal of this uh, Sutta is spent on the concept of fuel or fire. 
and that the Buddha talks about it in the sense of uh, from the beginning is uh, one of the um, bhikkhus there, uh, Sati, son of a fisherman, says that consciousness is that which runs in circles from this life and that, experiencing the results of past actions. And the Buddha called him a silly man without a spark of wisdom, and then launched into the point about that consciousness is dependently arising. And that he talks about that the consciousness being dependently arising uh, in the sense of sight, which is a kind of consciousness, depends upon the eye and its ability to gather information or to see. And that information that it gathers is, is what is called rupa, uh, or the physical reality that can be seen. Okay. So with that rupa and the eye itself is sight. Without that sight, without that eyeball, without the eye, there is no seeing. Years ago, we used to talk about the eye in the sky, but that's before Sputnik and satellites and all of that. And now we've got, what, 100,000 cameras up in the sky. But that's a form of an eye. And so it's uh, taking in that data. But before the satellites, there were no eyes in the sky. Maybe some space junk, but no eyes in the sky. This is important. In the sense that if there is no eye, there is no sight. Right. And then the Buddha says that it's kind of like fire and its fuel. That a fire is known by its fuel. So you have a log fire, a grass fire, a twig fire, a gas fire, a house fire, a car fire, a piano fire. You can have all kinds, you have a laptop fire. The fire is known by its fuel. And also consciousness is then also known by its fuel. Sight consciousness, touch consciousness, ear consciousness. This is the basic teachings also of the Buddha uh, that gives rise to the idea that everything that happens in the mind is a sequence of events. And this is the fuel for that. And then that is the fuel for the next thing. And things kick off almost like dominoes. Like playing the piano and making music? Okay, if you're doing this with the piano, yeah. it's going to make a sound. Exactly. If you don't hit the key, it's not going to throw the hammer. The hammer is not going to strike the string. The string is then not going to react by vibrating. The sound... Uh, then that's made is because the string is vibrating, causing air to vibrate. Look how much cause and effect there is just for the hitting of the key of the piano. Think about maybe the 10,000 things that it took to get that finger down onto the piano key. Mm. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of causality happening. Yes, <clears throat> there's a lot of cause and effect. And so we can then, therefore, define magic as believing that there is a, uh, an effect without a cause, mm. that there is no fuel, 
for the fire, and yet the fire burns anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Does that mean right. that? So, I mean, this is, I want to let you continue on, but there's a couple things I've been curious about. And this is kind of getting to the point of the Vipassana jhanas that I've been hearing you talking about, because it seems that if you know all the causalities and you become very familiar with them, you say that you can just simply slip into the Vipassana jhana very easily because you know the causality that needs to take place mm -hmm. to create the proper causes and conditions to get there. Yes, that's exactly right. <clears throat> An example of that then is if you know where the buried treasure is because you've got a map, then you just go dig it up. Yeah. But most people practice the jhanas like uh, arriving on a uh, deserted island with no map and no shovel, and their job is to go find that treasure. <laughs> I feel like that's been a part of my problem here. <laughs> I feel that's a part of my problem because so what I've been doing Maybe I can explain to you what's happening in my practice right now. Um, okay. What, what I try to do, and, you know, today, because I was really listening to some more of your stuff and really trying to take to the idea that, like, nothing is going to happen. Like, nothing's going to happen in my practice outside of what, like, I can give myself, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I'm really practicing that developing, the development of feeling really good. Like, that's... Right like a big focus of mine. So I end up doing like a lot of, which I don't have a problem with doing like a lot of the verbalization. Like sometimes I'll even think about, think about like the um, being in the desert and like seeing the water, like run towards the water like, and I'll get the feeling and then I'll go with the feeling and then I'll come back to the breath and be with the breath there in that, okay. in that way. Well, I think the, go ahead. Go ahead. The, Keep the, the goal in all of that is so like, you know, if I can think about, um, one I just heard you say was like, like if you lose your job or something like that, you don't have to get up early in the morning anymore. Like, or if you, you know, are free of debt now or something like that. Um, that feeling, I try and take that and then I try and like maybe verbalize until I maybe don't have to anymore. And then it can go quiet. Maybe I, I think that that's the thought. I don't know if I'm really, I think I'm getting to a quieter place at some point. Wow. You just hit on a very, very powerful uh, one-liner. You don't have to anymore. Basically, what that is, if you look at it in a certain way, you can say that that is, in fact, the second fetter. The second fetter is all of the things that you should do that you have to do. Well, guess what? You don't have to do anything. And if you don't have to do anything, then what's the default position then is just to do nothing. Do nothing. <laughs> do nothing. And while you're doing nothing, you can let it all happen around you. And we yeah. become more of an observer. In that regard, um, you have heard... Um, First off, I've got to give credit where credit is due. Humanity has had a lot of wisdom, and that one of the uh, great sources of wisdom in the West has been Shakespeare. Some of the stuff that Shakespeare says is just so spot on, but he's different from the Buddha because he didn't know how to put it all together. 
Mm-hmm. All right. So Shakespeare was the one who said that all the world is a stage. And each one of us is an actor on that stage. Yeah. And not one of them recognizes that they can put the script down. They don't have to go by that script. You don't have to go by the script. You don't have to do it that way. You don't have to go by the script. And everybody's got a script. They pick the script up over time from childhood. And you can read that script off. And in fact, that's what people do all day long is they go around reading their script. They live their life according to the script that they invented. This is our own private attachment to our own system of rites, rules, and rituals. The Pali word is Siva Bhatta Paramasa. And you hit it. You don't have to do anything. Oh, you came back. Yes, you, you were lost there for a second. We were just talking oh. about that you don't have to do anything. That this is Siva Bhatta Paramasa. I made a change to my connection so that it wouldn't happen again, hopefully. All right. But we were talking about putting down the script. Yes, to setting down the script, to laying it away, and mm-hmm. living according to a new script, which is basically a blank piece of paper. That's your new script, an empty sheet. Yeah. That we basically started off as an empty sheet, like a blackboard, and we've been drawing up there all our lives until it's gotten really crowded. And now we can just take a short time and start just erasing all of that stuff and leaving it back to a blank slate. Now, in that sense of Shakespeare, all the world's a stage and everyone's an actor. Some few people just don't put down the script. Some people leave the stage. The funny part about it is, is whatever place that stage is, there's an auditorium and the auditorium is basically empty because everybody's up on the stage, right? And it's pretty crowded up on the stage and it's very, very easy and free out in the audience. All we have to do is stop acting, give up the script and sit in the audience and enjoy the show. Wow. <laughs> okay. And in haiku, there is uh, a Bushu wrote this, um, and it, it translates as um, no place to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Everything grows by itself. So. One of the things that we can do then is we can just start to relish. Wow, everything is just happening all by itself. And it doesn't need me anymore. Everything can operate on its own, and I don't have to do anything right now. And so that's the kind of... This this is part of the practice of Anapanasati because basically um, to do this, 
requires skills that have to be developed. Why? Because those skills are needed to get over the habit of doing. You have a yeah. lot of habits of doing. I mean, look at what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so watching the hands and watching what we're doing and learning to settle down. And this is kind of then the overall way that we'll approach the weekend. Now, let's go back to that issue about the food and uh, nourishment and causality. A lot of people practice anapanasati or anything that they call meditation with the idea that they've got to develop a skill of concentration, they've got to focus really hard, and that eventually there will be some outcome of joy and bliss. But they've got to work really hard at it before they get the joy and bliss. Almost like that you've got to struggle and hate playing the piano and then eventually, all of a sudden, you can play that piece of music beautifully. Yeah. Things don't happen like that. That bliss has to have a food. It's got to have nourishment. It's got to be built up over time as a skill. It cannot be expected to just magically appear. But that's magical thinking. So that means that in your sitting practice, the, the, the idea of this is, is that we need to develop the skill of joy whenever we remember to, to keep checking on it. How's the joy? Is this good enough? The answer generally in the beginning is, mm, well, let's get back to it. But eventually you come to, yeah, things are good now. This is great. With nothing to do, no place to go, and everything is hunky-dory. But that takes practice because the habits of the mind are to start doing things, to start thinking of something, and in fact, to start thinking of something to do. <laughs> so you shouldn't, um, you, you should have certain times when you're thinking, I need to, you know, put more joy in instead of like kind of always being, because my, thought was kind of you should just always be satisfied with how much joy is there but try to cultivate more uh-huh it's a skill to be developed that skill comes um let us say these things build and work together that one is kind of a fuel for the other as they're developing but one way of looking at it is is that um the the important point to get started with this is to free the mind from hindrances, which we can call unwholesome states, and get the mind to start thinking in wholesome terms, wholesome states, uh, wholesome thoughts. Um, there's quite a long sutta about it, number 19, uh, and the Buddha talks about thoughts of harming people, thoughts of getting stuff, thoughts of... Uh, uh, fixing things, these are uh, unwholesome thoughts. But thoughts of satisfaction, thoughts of this is good, thoughts of everything is already complete, nothing needs to be worked on or fixed, 
um, this is more wholesome thoughts. And so there's a whole range of wholesome thoughts that we can come to. Then, in fact, one of the brilliant parts is that when we're thinking about the Dhamma, we're having wholesome thoughts. Everything about the Dhamma is wholesome. That's not true about all religions. Some, some religions have a lot of unwholesome kinds of stuff in it. But the uh, teaching of the Buddha is all wholesome all the time, which actually means that there really is no magic in the teaching of the Buddha. That everything has a condition. Mm-hmm. Um, an example then of the magical thinking is the magical idea of the self. That in fact people have various ideas about the self. One of the ideas of the self is is that it's unchanging, it's everlasting, it does not require any food, and just it's always there. And in fact it's so strong and so powerful that it'll even survive death. That's one concept of the self. And yet those very same people will have fear in the sense that um, the police will stop them or the bully will come onto the play, uh, playground or any a number of things like that and we become afraid. Well, if their self is, or a soul is permanent, everlasting and needs no fuel, then what can the cop possibly do to harm you? So you can no. see this, this dichotomy in there, okay? So they, yeah. when people believe uh, that there is a, a self that is long-lasting, everlasting, needs no fuel, can, eat, can uh, survive death, but then on the other side, it becomes more like a football for God to kick around. If my self is so strong that it can survive death, why can't it also survive God too? All right, so there's some issues and problems with that concept of a self that's, that's everlasting, uh, powerful, able to survive death and needs no fuel. Then there's the kind of thing uh, that says, well, the self is everlasting as long as the body lasts. But when the body dies, when the body breaks up, then the self is annihilated. This would be then, the first one would be eternalism or semi-eternalism, that maybe the self eventually reaches moksha, but it's got to go life after life after life for a long, long time. And then, so that's semi-eternal, but semi-eternal and eternal are basically about the same thing in the sense of not now, not ever. (laughs) But now we have this idea of annihilation, that when the body breaks up, the body is annihilated. Then there is on the other side of the coin the uh, the nihilist position that there is absolutely no self at all, does not exist. But if the soul or self does not exist, that means that no one has really any responsibility for anything and we can go and harm as people as, as we please, which is basically the idea that we can get away with anything. That even those those people have a rule against it, I don't see it as a rule for me because I can get away with it. This is the criminal mentality, the mob mentality, um, 
And you can see that every human being then is a crowd because they'll go from one to the other to the next of these various views of self. But the teaching of the Buddha is that the self is actually dependently arising when the conditions there are right for it. And when there are no conditions for it, then there is no self. Sometimes we're, we're selfless and altruistic and thinking about others and thinking about the world or thinking about the way things really are. When I say the world here, I'm talking about the planet Earth, not yeah. human culture. You, the planet Earth is just fine, by the way, with or without humans. It's just doing fine. Human culture's got some problems. And the problems is based upon actually this magical thinking that things exist without a fire when it, or without a fuel where, in fact, they don't. So this is a way of beginning to understand, well, who are you? Well, it depends upon the moment. It depends upon the conditions that you're in. It's very true. Yes, it does. It depends upon the conditions that you're in. And if you're not in any conditions much, then there's not much of a self there. If you're zoned out, then you're not really there. Uh-huh. So you could say there is eternalism. There is annihilationism. There is nihilism. And then there is temporaryism which is where the Buddha is talking from. Dependent okay. arising. Dependent arising. The self, the self is dependent. And so this is part of the confusion a lot of people have in Buddhism, you know, going around, is there a self or is there not a self? Well, it depends. <laughs> Literally, it depends. And we're not talking about diapers. <laughs> Well, maybe we are. <laughs> so, depends. is that a diaper brand? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it depends. That's a diaper brand. <laughs> Good one. Because you can depend upon them. Yeah. All right. So, you. back to the point now. This is something that you can spend the whole time with, is recognizing. Uh, the cause and effects, especially in regard to having wholesome versus unwholesome thoughts. The unwholesome thoughts are going to be hindrances and that we want to uh, remain away from them. One of the ways of thinking about the hindrances is uh, any thoughts about the past or the future. That the, the term that uh, is translated into English is restlessness, and that restlessness is at various degrees. One, yeah. one degree is, is just a kind of basic thinking about things and just letting the mind just wander around a little bit higher than that, and it's a little bit um, um, unsettled. We can call it a little bit of stress or anxiety, tension, and you can hear now the words are building up in their power, and this is all restlessness, to, rec to recognize that you've been in the habit of being restless because you had an agenda, you had a set of rules, or you had things to do. 
but now you don't have anything to do. If there's nothing to do, what that means is now you can get kind of in touch with this underlying restlessness that has been there all along as the driving force or the fuel for much of your activity. Now that you're not having any activity, you can feel that underlying push to go do something. The restlessness is deeply buried. And mm -hmm. when you can come, you can say, aha, I see it now. Yeah, I can see it. And take great joy and delight in the fact that you can see what has been pushing you around for your whole life. And you didn't even know that it was an underlying restlessness. And that when you rest see it, when you see it, would you try to throw it out or would you just, like you said, just be happy that you see it? Well, um, feelings are, this is a deep feeling. And so throwing those out is not so easy to do, but you can deal with it in the sense of try to locate it in the body. Find out if there's a certain area of the body that has a certain kind of sensation. You can then with that start to breathe into it if it's in the breathing part of the body and start to play with it as a new toy. Play with the restlessness. Play okay. with the restlessness. Okay. And it, sometimes people can get, um, let us say, uh, the, the joke of the story is that here the guy is sitting in meditation. He's sitting on the floor doing his posture thing and, and doing Anapanasati. And then he wakes up and realizes that he's actually in the, in the kitchen with the refrigerator door open. And he had somehow <laughs> gotten off the floor in front of the refrigerator when he finally woke up. Now, wow. what got him from the floor to the refrigerator was an underlying restlessness that he was not aware of. Yeah. And that restlessness then drove him to the refrigerator with the idea that, oh, if I go to the refrigerator, I'll feel better with this restlessness somehow. We don't recognize that a lot of our behavior is driven by this underlying tendency of restlessness. But then immediately under the restlessness, we find another feeling, the baseline feeling of fear. In the sense that restlessness arises because this moment is not good enough. I'm afraid that this is just not good enough right now. Yeah. Okay. So these are the things to watch for, and they can be watched for at any point in time. Um, an example of that is any time that you move the body, you get up out of the chair, you want to ask yourself, why did I get up out of the chair? That was a wonderful chair I was sitting in, and I was so relaxed. Why bother getting up? Uh -huh. And so you begin to do everything mindfully. Don't get into the refrigerator without knowing when you were sitting down and standing up that you've got the intention to go do that. Yeah. And so this is part of the waking up that you can do all the time. Now, while you're actually sitting, the job is just to get the hindrances out of the mind, which basically means any thoughts about anything that are outside of the room that you're in.
any thought about another room in the house or your yard or the town you live in or people you know or anything that is not in that room, mm -hmm. be aware of that because we're going to have only wholesome thoughts and the likelihood is, is that it will take you into unwholesome thoughts. If you start thinking about things that are outside, you might even think of something to do. I can see you right now, Saturday afternoon in 7-Eleven. <laughs> Waking up like, how did I get here? <laughs> One thing I was going to ask you was, did you, and now I think I got the answer already, but uh, if you think it would be appropriate for me to uh, go to the gym during this, this period of time. No, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's not go to the gym. And okay. so thoughts of going to the gym are going to be now a hindrance for you to be able to do, to be here now. The mind's going to the gym. Okay, don't let the mind go to the gym and then the body won't go to the gym. Okay. The mind, in fact, that's something that's important also about fuel and causes. That the mind, oh monks, is the forerunner. You see, in Brahmanism, they had the idea that an actual physical act was like chiseling uh, a, a, a story into stone and that uh, speech or talking about something was like drawing a story or uh, in the sand, but that the mind was like drawing a story in the air, or writing a story in the air. You see what I mean? In other words, your physical acts last a long, long time. Your speech will last, but not so well. But a thought doesn't have much lasting thing anyway. Just there it goes and it's gone. Okay. And the Buddha says, no, no, the mind is the forerunner. No actions will occur unless they are preceded by in the mind. And not only that, but really, really bad, low class, despicable behaviors like killing someone almost is always preceded by a direct threat. That we verbalize it first. First we're thinking about it, and then we verbalize it, and then we do it. So, with no one to verbalize to and no place to go, that means that all of these mental th thoughts that you have are just a causality with no place to go. So the mind is just spinning its wheels and it's uncomfortable being in those kind of thoughts. Thoughts of wanting something that you don't have and winding up in the store. Thoughts of, oh, I've got to go take the trash out because the house is stinky. Well, we'll give that one a maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that faucet has been leaking all of these weeks. I ought to go fix that leaky faucet. No, that one can, can wait for the end of the retreat. That's the point, okay, is to be uh, choose very carefully what jobs and tasks you're going to do with the idea of bringing that down as close to zero as you can so that you really do have nothing to do. 
then is when you're going to run into this wall of restlessness that, by the way, there's another word for restlessness, and that's called boredom. That you have been trying to escape this restlessness and boredom by doing things. And now you've got nothing to do. And so here comes that restlessness. Here comes that boredom. Be able to see it directly. Recognize it. And also know that if you're able to control your breathing with your mind, if you can take long, slow, deep breaths, basically the, the first the first big skill that we learn is the big skill of learning to control the breath so that you can take long, slow, deep breaths, that you actually um, can oxygenate the body to the point that you know that you're oxygenating the body because the body begins to tingle and vibrate alive, that you get really tingly when you get a lot of oxygen. So that's a good way of noticing this. So. If you can actually get the, the body breathing well, that takes mind control to do that. That in fact, you're also um, con- uh, developing the skill of the mental skill of making the breath long and slow. That is actually the body already knows how to do that. It's not the breathing itself that's being trained anyway. That it's the mind that's being trained to take these long, slow, deep breaths, as well as training the mind to gladden the mind. So. How do you like to gladden the mind? Pardon? How do you like to gladden the mind? Uh, Oh, I see you, Mr. Boredom. I see you, Mr. Peeling. In fact, one of the students we came up with, Mr. Turd, I see you, Mr. Turd. Because if you don't see Mr. Turd, there's going to be shit all over the place. And what if there's nothing bad around? Is it generally going to be boredom there? So you can see the boredom? If you can see the boredom if it is there. Or if, and if it is there, then you can take delight that you can see it and not be driven by it. That you're not going to be driven to the refrigerator or to 7-Eleven by the boredom. That you're going to conquer it. You're going to take control over it. You're going to say, you're not the boss here anymore. That I'm the boss and I'm going to sit here and do nothing and enjoy it. Yeah. All right. So how much eating can I do? Pardon? How much eating can I do? Eating? Yeah, I can I can do like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Well, I would recommend to eat the way that the Buddha does for this retreat. That that's one of the other things that retreats do. Most people in the beginning have trouble doing it. If we're used to three meals a day, then you could cut it down to two. And for a short retreat like a long weekend, that's uh, that's okay, down, down to two meals. But make sure that you're doing it in this way. One is just the meal, the main meal. And then the second meal is more like snacking. Okay. Yeah. That the Buddha is very big on eating just once a day. We eat once a day. And we feel comfortable and happy and uh, vibrantly alive. 
that in fact uh, eating once a day they talk about it in the sense of like uh, a, a little fast as opposed to eating when you get up in the morning you eat in the middle of the day and eat before you go to sleep and now the body's always got food to process always got to do something but if we limit the amount of food that we take and limit the time of the day that we're eating then it does have uh, a purification process Okay. Okay. So, um, like I said, one main meal, and then maybe a snack, and then you might even um, start to play with that. That snack is not a big deal. It's like maybe a banana or an apple. Okay. Okay. So, this is a way to look at the food: is begin to limit uh, everything. That's also going to keep you out of the kitchen. If you only eat once a day, stay on the couch. Mm -hmm. So whenever you get up off that couch, make sure that you know why. Well, now I am going to go to the toilet. That's it. And number two is, wait a minute. Why am I getting up after all? I really don't need to go there. I don't need to go to the refrigerator. I really don't need to go do anything right now. I can just sit here and enjoy. Okay. And so every time we, we have those kind of thoughts, we can congratulate ourselves again for, I caught it. I'm beginning to see these tendencies to go and do and act and, and whatnot like that. So what about the seated meditation? How much of that should I be doing? Uh, what's what? How, what about the formal sitting? How much of that should I be doing? As much as you want, as much as you enjoy it. Okay. If you get really tired because your uh, um, uh, the mind is really um, let us say focused and alert for uh, a while, it will get drowsy. But in fact, this is uh, part of the Satipatthana is to start watching what states of mind you're in. Start watching whether the mind is strong and sharp and functioning or whether it's dull. There's a lot of different tools that you can use to do that. Uh, but since you're not going to be playing any games, you won't know how, how sharp you are with the game. So you, but you can get an idea that, yeah, you feel really sharp right now. As opposed to, well, the mind's really dull right now. Because it goes in cycles. It's up and down. You're not sharp all the time, and you're not dull all the time. Yeah. And that sometimes it's really sharp. Exalted, even. And you should be aware of that, too. Okay? So begin to keep um, investigating the states of mind that you're in. Be investigating the feeling state that you're in. And in investigating... Uh, the thoughts that you have in the sense of keeping the mind's thoughts wholesome and investigate the body with the breathing and allow yourself to know what the body is doing. Now, I know that this sounds a lot, but you've already got a lot of time now. You've got nothing else to do except for the Satipatthana, doing it in regard to Anapanasati. And then we find out, wait a minute, Anapanasati is Satipatthana, and the Satipatthana is the Eightfold Noble Path. And so we practice that way. Okay. So, can oh, we go? Yeah, there's nothing to do. 
Nothing to do. <laughs> Nothing to do. I, I mean, don't I, have to do anything. <laughs> so is that is that how I should do my sitting practice? Like nothing mm -hmm. to do. We need to, we need to get rid of the hindrances and we need to gladden the mind. Right. And once you get the mind into that glad state, that's in fact that gladdening the mind is that phrase nothing to do. And there's nothing to do here. And that's gladdening the mind. Nothing to do. Then the next phrase, let me relax and enjoy the moment. Now we've got relaxation. We've got pity. We've got sukha. I can do this. The mental attitude of, hey, this is really nice and I'm successful at it. And so now we develop right attitude. So right view is to let's go do a retreat. Right sati is wakey, wakey, keep waking up, keep watching what's going on, watch the body, watch the feelings, watch the mind, watch what the mind is doing, watch the states of mind and objects, keep watching, that's the sati. Taking the right effort to make sure that we're breathing well and that we, in fact, have set it up so that there is nothing to do. It takes a little effort to have nothing to do. And we also take the right effort then to gladden the mind. Okay. And then the, the, the next part of the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the one that is the, is the power, and that is right attitude. The right attitude of, I can do this. The right attitude of, my, what a wonderful weekend this is. The right attitude of, no, how, no matter how uh, obstructed the mind is. I lost you after uh, you, you did the kiss, and then I lost you. Oh, Was yes. It? All right. We'll start with the kiss. Right attitude. That's, the, <laughs> that's, the that's it. The right yeah. attitude is... We can do this. The right attitude of, wow, nothing to do, no place to go, everything is finished. The right attitude of, we're successful at cleaning out the mind. The Pali word for this also is uh, the word pity. Now, this pity actually is part and parcel of right attitude, and it is the joy of the winning. I mean, what does the Heisman Trophy football star do when he makes a touchdown? Does he mope off the field? Celebrates. Dances. Does he celebrate? Yeah. Does he spike the ball and jump in the air and throw his arms up? Yeah, he celebrates. This is what we mean by right attitude, the attitude of celebration. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when you when you've got the attitude of celebration, it's hard to feel the attitude of or the uh, the feeling of boredom at the same time. Very few people are bored with being in the state of celebration. So, as soon as you glad in the mind, you've already come out of the hindrances, right? Pardon? As soon as you glad in the mind, what? You've already come out of the hindrances. You exactly. Then, and in fact, the gladdening the mind is the process of throwing the hindrances out. To gladden the mind, which means to come out of the state of the hindrances, up. Aha, I see you. There you go. To, bri to brighten the mind, out you go. The Buddha had the phrase, aha, I see you, Mara. Out you go, you know, because I, I can see that stuff. And just by yeah. seeing it and saying that we see it, we've already got a new thought. We've already come out of it. And so then we congratulate ourselves. Well, I'm glad I don't have to think about that anymore. 
So my question is, you know, okay, so I'm I'm sitting there, glad in the mind, nothing to do, nowhere to go. I'm taking my deep breaths, right? Do we want to? What What do we want to do with our attention? Do we want to focus About on the breath? To do with tension, you said. Uh, our attention. Attention. Okay. Um. Because normally, basically, you would. Uh, the sutta says that you would attend wisely. This is dukkha when there is dukkha. This is not dukkha when there is no dukkha. To attend wisely, oh, when there's suffering, oh, this is the source of dukkha. When there is uh, no dukkha, ah, oh, this is the way that we've gotten here. Right view, right uh, sati, right effort, right attitude. And so, in fact, you, uh, the attention is the investigation itself. Mm. And so you can ask yourself, how's my sati? How's my investigation skills? How am I doing here? What's going on? This is what we pay attention to. What about the body? Where do, where, when do I start paying attention to the body? When you breathe. Okay. When you, <laughs> when you <laughs> breathe in, you know you're breathing in. And when you breathe in, the body will grow. It will change. When the body um, uh, is breathing out, then the body will contract a bit and get a little smaller. So you breathe in, you breathe out, you notice the body, uh, you check out the body, and you begin to notice it. Because normally I, I try to localize the attention around the nose. No, don't do that. that you're not ready for that. You don't have the, the, uh, the deep enough skills. Right now, the way to do it is to just to work with the body. Work in the sense body. of relaxing the body. To be able to relax. Now, we're not talking about complete tranquility. We're just talking about being in a relaxed state as opposed to a, um, an agitated state or, uh, um, you know, sort of waiting for something to happen state because we've been working on getting it to the point that nothing's happening <laughs> and so we can relax so work with the body in the sense of knowing the body knowing the uh the sensations be aware also of your posture now what i mean by posture is this is um not exactly touch sense but it's what they call proprioceptic sense an example of that is is that you know the posture of your body right now the example for beginners would be to close your eyes put your hands in the air and wave your hands and then open your eyes and look where your hand is is it not exactly where you thought it would be well what do you mean thought because it wasn't the thought that you had you just knew where the arm was why do we know that because we can feel it it's, but we feel it with proprioceptic. We don't feel it with the touch. Okay, so becoming aware of the postures of the body and becoming aware of relaxation of this, of letting it settle down. Being aware of the touch of the body in the sense of 
the air rising and falling. With the rising and falling, you can feel the touch of the cloth. You can feel the, uh, uh, if you've got no shirt on, then you can feel the air on the skin. And that um, we can begin to understand that the boundaries are not as, as fixed as we thought that we think that the skin is the skin and below the skin is me and above the skin is air. And it's a hard layer. Guess what? It's not, not so hard. So you can begin to understand and know that we're actually um, in a massive conversation with the air around us, that the body breathes all over the body. This air, this, this arm is breathing. This arm is in communication with the air and, and the touch and um, uh, odors come out and uh, water comes out and uh, air moves in and out. And so I've the boundaries. Been able to feel that before. Pardon? Like, uh, I've been able to feel like um, breath sensations like in certain parts of my body that were not like breathing parts of my body. Like the feet, like the legs, like during mm -hmm. meditation and, and actually a sort for a period of time after like meditation, like during my day. But then it went away, so I don't know. Well, if we keep practicing, then these things will come back. If we want them to come back, then they will be elusive because now we're not in the state ready for that stuff to come and inviting. Now we're... Um, we're advertising, we want it. Um, We're in hindrance. Exactly. Right. Uh, the example, you're in a black, uh, black darkened room. You can't see anything in there. But uh, you know for sure when you went into the room that there was a black cat in that room and you closed the door. Now the room is completely black. You can't see anything. The cat is black. How are you going to catch the cat? You gotta sit still, let it come to you. Ah, you got it, right. If you sit still, the cat will come. If you chase it, it will keep going. This is how we learn to, to practice correctly, is to sit and allow things to come rather than trying to get a hold of them. And then we take great joy intentionally taking great joy that instead of waiting for the joy to come no this is a skill to be developed and so okay. we have to know which things are skills right attitude is a skill why because we were born as um children we were born as victims mommy had to change my diaper she had to feed me my arms didn't work right. The furniture's too big. And so we start off every child with the mentality that they're a loser. And most of us keep that mentality so that I can't fix it myself. Oh, I can't work on my own car. I've got to get a mechanic. Oh, I can't fix my own body. I've got to go to a doctor. Oh, I can't fix my own emotions. I've got to go to a psychologist. Oh, I can't fix my own heart. I've got to go get a religion. Always looking for mommy. Always mm. looking for that parent to come take care of us. Guess what? Nobody can fix the inside of your mind. 
Ain't no neuroscientist with probes and scalpels and, and spoons and things like that that's going to take the dukkha out. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it. You can do it. You can do it. By being on guard and throw that stuff out. So that you can get yourself into a happy state of mind and just sit and enjoy that weekend. Just sit and enjoy. Observe wisely. See the hindrances. See the state of the mind. Mm -hmm. See the body. What else? And, and really enjoy your weekend. Ah, really enjoy it. Really enjoy it. Okay. Cultivate the joy. Okay. All right. Well, go do it. And if you want, you can check in every day. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thank you. We'll see you later, Keith. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.